2: Hello, you're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. We've got a great podcast for you in Matt Shorty's absence today. We're talking conspiracy theories and how they've come to poison British and American politics. Really interesting discussion on that coming up. But before then, time for the Columnist panel.
3: Manveen Rana, and someone called Matthew on Times
2: Radio. Yes, to dig into the day's biggest issues, I'm now joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hello, Manveen.
1: Hello.
4: God,
2: bit of a tongue twister there. And Matthew <laughs> today is the Times and Sunday Times columnist Matthew Syed. Hi, Matthew. Morning, Patrick. Uh, Great to have you both. Let's get straight into it because I was just talking about the new immigration statistics uh, with Jonathan Gullis, who is one of the uh, biggest names uh, and biggest mouths, you wouldn't mind me saying, on the rise of the Conservative Party. He's not happy at all uh, with the increase in immigration numbers out this morning. Uh, And Matthew, last weekend, you wrote in the Sunday Times uh, about the geopolitics uh, of what you call the crisis in the asylum system. Uh, And your idea, your argument was that returning refugees to their countries of origin might be the best way for the UK to remove the incentive of coming here. It's not an uncontroversial idea, so why, do you, why, why are you convinced of its wisdom?
4: Well, I think thank you. It's the only way to eliminate the incentive to come here is to change the uh, treaties on non-refoulement. What I would like to see is us taking more refugees into this country uh, and into other Western countries. This is refugees, rather than I think what perhaps Gullis was talking about, which is legal uh, migration. Patrick, mm. is that is that right? Yes. Um, well,
2: I mean, and- Jonathan Gullis would say both illegal and legal migration would need to come down.
4: All right. The, the column I wrote was about was about refugees and. I would like us to take more in a proper burden-sharing arrangement through safe and legal routes. This would give people who are vulnerable, who don't have the money to pay people smugglers to come here. It could be done on the basis of need rather than wherewithal, um, and it could be done with democratic consent. We would want to integrate people who came here who have a huge amount to contribute to to this country and, and other Western countries. But the only way this can happen with democratic consent is if you stop people coming here through illegal means on small boats. Because otherwise, if you take lots of people uh, through safe and legal routes, and you've got people coming here on small boats, it will overwhelm democratic consent. It hands massive collateral uh, to the right wing. We're seeing this across Europe. And it worries me, Patrick, deeply that I wrote a column that I I thought was, was reasonably balanced on this issue, Alluding to what you just mentioned, which is because so many people uh, want to come to the West, it can be weaponized by China and Russia and other countries in the autocratic axis to, as it were, ferment geopolitical instability as a way of increasing migrant flows to Western Europe. We saw what happened in 2016 this is a massive threat to the liberal democratic order. And I say, as a liberal, we must do this and do it as a matter of urgent, as a matter of urgency. But I did note that this was considered to be an extreme right wing position. I I, I just couldn't disagree more. What do you think, Manveen?
1: I think it's, you know, it's one of the thorniest issues we face. Um, You know, Matthew's right that it is something we do need to talk about and we should be able to have um, a proper sensible discussions about in terms of policy. I think I think he's right that we need to have a better system of taking refugees you know at the moment we are very much um vulnerable to taking the people who can afford people smugglers we encourage these people smuggling rackets to continue and you know everybody everybody loses out as, as long as they're sort of they've taken root um I think the difficulty is that by by cancelling uh the 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 obligation that we have to not to send people back to places where they could be persecuted. Um, it's just, it's, in a way, it's one of the things that defines the West, I suppose. You know, we've had this sort of, this whole centuries of liberal thought that leads to this place at the end of, of the world wars, where you you come up with uh, a rules-based system, which is basically based on the universality of human rights. And you know quite clearly, Matthew wants to be able to bring people in, which I think is laudable. Um, you know, through a scheme that works, where you can be sure that the people you, you're helping are the ones who are most in need. The difficulty is if you're turning people back, or you're sending them to places where they could be persecuted. You know, that that's that's a hugely dangerous um, place right. for for. To, and, and I I I think the, the, the my, my my problem with it would be that it's based on the idea that we ha- always have uh, sort of. This is, this is Peter Hennessy's idea of sort of, um, good chaps in government who, who want to sort of do what, what is best and come up with these sort of schemes that enable people to come over through legal routes. Firstly, that's always very bureaucratic. That's one of the reasons people come on small boats. You know, we, we saw it with Afghanistan. We really wanted to be able to help people who had helped the British army. There, there was a, a scheme to enable it. The scheme was incredibly slow. Most of the people coming over on small boats at the moment are Afghans who couldn't come over didn't make it in the scheme many of them were actually valid um so you know our schemes haven't been very successful in the past they rely on on you know governments wanting to launch them uh, and i i would just worry about giving governments the right to turn people back and send them to places where they might be persecuted because i just think that could be horribly misused
4: may, may i ask a question patrick of of manby it's a really interesting answer and I'm i'm conscious that it's it's such an interesting thing to debate because I think it is mm. urgent for us. Um do, do we agree on the statistical point that there are more people, who, and, and I know this from my family in different parts of the world, there's more people who wish to come to the West than we could accommodate with democratic consent? And if I can take that as a given, I think agreed by, by most people, we have to therefore, as it were, cut the supply. I hate to put it in crude economic terms. What we're doing at the moment, and I'll be interested in your view on the morality of this, is we pay transit countries in North Africa to turn people back. We pay Turkey to stop people getting through that, that particular route. Um, in other words, we are stopping people who are vulnerable from getting here in the first place as a way of um, reducing demand. Um, why is that less immoral than turning people away once they have get here, given that the second one of those two options destroys the possibility of loss of life?
1: No I, I I couldn't agree more I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a moral thing to be paying countries you know in, uh, in as Matthew pointed out in his column you know that there was this era under Blair where we were paying Gaddafi to stop people being able to move you know sub-Saharan uh, refugees effectively being able to move through and you know Libya has become sort of a real hotspot for that ever since and there's been some really dangerous crossings uh, and people dying on boats trying to make their way out of Libya ever since. Um, I, I don't think that's the answer. Uh, you, you know I I fully accept that we haven't come up with uh, a brilliant solution yet. I just I would worry about changing the fundamental law where it's okay to sort of send people back to places where they're persecuted. I'd say use the money that you're you're spending to stop, you know, to to encourage countries to stop people coming on on coming up with sort of safer Places in the middle where where they oh. can meet can, where people can meet like so this is this happened a lot in with the Syrians, where before there was this huge exodus to Europe, actually we were plowing quite a lot of aid money into places like Lebanon and Jordan to try and try and cope with a problem in a place where they felt safer um and also you know that they, they were sort of surrounded by people of of a culture they recognized, and actually many of them were quite happy. The difficulty was we weren't giving enough, and then there was an even bigger push, and the the war became you know even more horrific and and there was just there, you know there's far too many people moving through so I, th- I think you know I, I don't think it's right for us to be paying countries to stop people I don't think that's any more moral than us turning them away I just think we've got to think of how we can come up with a better solution for you know in order to, to make make sure that people are safe
2: what do you what do you say to that Matthew um
4: well I agree we need to find places that are set I mean so many thoughts. So, so the, the first thing is I would, want pe- I would want the principle of non-refoulement to go that would give us a chance to, as it were, circumvent the army of lawyers who, for understandable reasons, are deploying the conventions to stop this happening. In other words, it's making it highly impractical. I would want the West to come with a solution that enables us to send the initial people who arrive illegally to somewhere as safe as possible, but that isn't the West, to destroy the incentive to come in the first place, that would hopefully mean that nobody tries again. I do think that Australia has shown that this disincentive has practical effects and has real teeth. But the idea that we can spend money to, as it were, stop the push factor, I think is, I'm afraid, not realistic. We could spend our entire GDP on foreign aid and development to try and quell conflict in other parts of the world. Let me say that with the energy transition, we are moving into a geopolitical area era of huge instability. Uh, cobalt is dominated by the Democratic Republic of Congo, that is currently teetering. Um, there are coups across the Sahel. Um, there is a completely different energy system emerging, where countries need an order of magnitude more rare earth metals and minerals. Mm. Given that we now have two geopolitical blocks at a moment of high tension, the amount of instability is going to rapidly increase. Unless we get on top of this now, unless we reform the treaties now, the right, in the form of guilders in Holland, uh, Trump is in a, with a great chance of winning, they're just going to destroy the treaties. They're going to undermine the rule of law. And the liberal democratic order, what remains of it, is just going to disappear. I think this is urgent. And you know, Manveen acknowledged that we don't yet have a solution. Non-refoulement, with with a consensus position of the West to rewrite the treaties, to take more refugees that would do more for human welfare. It would destroy the business model of the criminal gangs. The disincentive would stop people seeking to come by small boats anyway, and it would stop the autocratic axis fermenting instability as a weapon of geopolitics. It seems to me it's win-win-win, but you have to get rid of non-refoulement. But as I say, I'd want people to go back to countries where they were where we're the safe and not persecuted. But that number of countries, by the way, that, that that middle ground of countries is going to diminish over the next 30 years.
1: I mean, look, I, I agree with a lot of Matthew's analysis. You know, I do think the world is more unstable than ever. I, energy is just one of the things that is going to divide us. When, If anything, I'd say we're in more than two blocks. I think we're probably in three where there is a, a middle ground of you know a lot of the global south, as we saw yeah, with yeah. Ukraine, who yeah. are willing to go either way depending on treaties and depending yeah. on what benefits them at any given moment. Yeah. Given that status um, of, of this incredibly unstable world around us, uh, I just I just fear that we've already seen populism coming to the West. You know, we already have Trump. We already, you know, as you said, we already have this election in Netherlands. The moment you get rid of the principle of of non refoulement actually, you just allow Trump and anybody else who comes in to send to just just to to, to push up. Um, the the uh, push up his wall and make sure that nobody is ever allowed access. You know, to, to, to rely on uh, you know uh, go- governments to volunteer schemes to bring people over, I think is just hugely unlikely to happen because they, you know the, w- the far right has already taken hold. If if not in if they're not in government, their their rhetoric certainly now influences governments enough to ensure that that just I just don't think that would happen. Well, I think we that. would end up with with the you know you'd just be pulling up all the barriers, and, and there would be no, no way back.
4: You wouldn't need the barriers if non-refoulement was credible. It, it, you would, you, the, Trump wouldn't be able to send people back to persecuted countries because people wouldn't be coming. They wouldn't be paying £5,000 to come here in the first place if they but knew what, that they would be deported. What happens to them? Well, as I say, what, what you want at, at the moment, Manveen, is the people who are the most vulnerable are not getting here at all. what's happening is almost our entire asylum or the the vast majority of people coming on small boats this is going to get worse so the question isn't what happens to the people who come here would be those people won't be coming anymore we'd be taking more people through safe and legal routes so the welfare effect the welfare of the people who are currently suffering persecution would be increased it would defang the right on this issue because it would stop them being able to weaponise this in the way that they have been doing, and it will get worse.
0: This is Times Radio. The
2: new Minister for Common Sense, Estimate Vey, has been speaking in Parliament for the first time this morning. Here she is responding to a question from Labour's Alison McGovern. As a Prime Minister,
5: if you need to instal a Minister for Common Sense, is it an admission that you yourself don't really have any? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I also have seen the reports in the paper describing me as the Minister of Common Sense and I appreciate the concept as a difficult one to grasp for the members on the other side of the uh, bench there but I am committed to delivering common sense decisions such as delaying the ban on petrol and diesel cars, delaying the ban on oil and gas borders, scrapping HS2, Birmingham to Manchester, reducing the overseas budget, all common sense policies that those on the opposite benches have voted against. This side of the house is full of common sense, and I'm building on all those policies.
2: Yeah. Manvi Rana, is that does that amount to common sense? <laughs>
1: um, I, I think it's. I think. Labour were probably quite right to point out that giving somebody the title, uh, even if it's you know not official, but it's been, int- you know, it's been briefed to everybody as a minister for common sense, does rather imply that you fear you haven't had much up until now. Um, and I thought it was really interesting that Esther McVeigh, when she took the role, you know, tweeted a little statement about it in which she said, I'll be sad to be leaving my role at, uh, as a presenter at GB News, but if you are going to have a minister for common sense, where better to go than GB News and the Daily Express, the homes of common sense? And I think actually that kind of gives away what this move is all about. You know, the title is Minister for Common Sense. Actually, it's just assuring a lot of the, the base, the people who came over perhaps with, you know, as part of the Red Wall, you know, people who who feel like the, the arrival of David Cameron, Bodes ill for this government. This is a way of sort of balancing it out a bit by telling them there is still uh, a GB News certified voice of common sense in government. What it'll mean for policy, though, is um, is anyone's guess.
2: Well, it's, quite, it's, quite a, it's always a very potent uh, political line, isn't it, common sense, Matthew?
4: Well, when I think of common sense, I think of my former social economics teacher, Mary McDonough. Yours and and mine, of course. I think (laughs) I'm correct. Exactly. It was your teacher. Isn't that amazing? So I was taught in suburban (laughs) Reading by this brilliant teacher, high on common sense, who had no truck with with monetarism and, and these other schools of economic thought. And she cut through the, the nonsense and ended up teaching you later later in life, which I think she regards as her greatest achievement <laughs> uh, <laughs> as, as a teacher. Well,
2: no, no, she always re- regarded your ping-pong career, your table tennis career rather, Matthew, <laughs> as, her, as her proudest achievement. Not well, a lesson I'm, went uh, past without her mentioning Matthew's side, but there you go. She,
4: I always got criticised by her when I took off for, to play in tournaments rather than listening to her, her latest stricture on the banking system. But, <laughs> you know, say, it's a complex concept because... I've got a great deal of admiration for, for common sense when common sense has been, as it were, filtered through many generations and it captures a very important piece of, of wisdom. Um, but I, I completely agree with Mandarin. What I think this is, is a way of weaponizing disputes in, you know, I hate the term, but the culture wars. Um and to uh, get people in their, uh, in the red wall to think that they're on their side. And what were the examples she came what were the examples she came out with? I don't think all of Delaying those. Delaying the
2: ban good. on petrol and diesel cars, on gas boilers, scrapping HST, yeah, et cetera, KS2. et cetera. I
4: mean these are complex. These are complex issues. I mean, I don't think that they're common. I think that you could have pretty reasonable people who disagree on almost all of those.
2: And it's interesting <laughs> it's interesting, man, Matthew mentions culture wars or whatever you want to call them, these, these touchstone issues. But clearly, if there's been a lesson of the last year in British politics, it's that, it's that old James Carville line to Bill Clinton uh, during the 1992 presidential campaign, you know, it's the economy stupid. Uh, regardless of all of these cultural issues or these sort of quite emotive policy debates, if people feel poorer, they are not going to be inclined to thank the incumbent government.
1: Yeah, but it's invariably when the economy is in trouble and a government doesn't feel like it can really fix it that it starts to stoke up more of the culture war issues. That it starts to talk more about common sense for you know ordinary people because that's the sort of thing they hope will buy them back some votes. When you know, as we saw yesterday, there isn't very much else they can offer. Uh, they can talk about tax cuts, but the budget won't really allow anything that most people will feel a huge difference from. So that's when you have to win people over by saying. We're the party of common sense uh, and GB News and the Daily Express agree. Um, you know, there must there will be some people in the country who might be convinced by that. Who knows?
2: That was Manveen Rana and Matthew Side. Remember, you can listen to Manveen whenever you like on our sister podcast, Stories of Our Times. Just download the Times Radio app or pick it up wherever you get your podcast from. And you can read Matthew every week in the Sunday Times. Just head to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box and get yourself a subscription. There's always a deal on. So have a look. Coming up, we're talking conspiracies.
0: blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
2: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this: the big thing on Times Radio. Now, dif- disinformation surrounding the war in the Middle East has flooded social media since the Hamas attacks on October the seventh, that fueled conspiracy theories and paranoia around the world. Here in the UK, though, conspiracies are nothing new, but are they now becoming an integral part of mainstream politics? in Westminster and beyond. Well, one way to try and find out, to take the temperature of the state of our political discourse, is to take a peek into an MP's postbag. And one of them joins me now. Charlotte Nichols is the Labour MP for Warrington North. Morning, Charlotte.
5: Morning, Patrick.
2: So you were elected in 2019, and you've written about this before, you've spoken about this before. Did you find that, obviously, 2019 almost immediately you're plunged into the pandemic. How quickly did you find that you were picking up sort of conspiratorial thinking in your correspondence?
5: Yeah, as you say, from almost the moment I was elected, it was something that had started to pick up because, of course, from almost a month after becoming an MP, we were starting to see the early signs of the pandemic. And I think it really reached a kind of, pinnacle about a year or so into it particularly when the vaccine rollout started there were a lot of conspiracies around George Soros around Bill Gates around 5G and all of these sorts of things that weren't just coming from constituents which were as a minority probably of the correspondence that I had about this but from people across the country and often around the world who because I'm Jewish seem to think that I had a kind of important role to play in this conspiracy, and it became really quite troubling, actually.
2: Uh, That must be a concern in terms of your personal safety.
5: Yeah, I don't think it's just my personal safety, though. I think at times when you see a real uptick in particularly anti-Semitic conspiratorial thinking, and it's something that's never really gone away, it's not just how you think as an individual, but how you feel going into sort of communal spaces and so on when you see synagogues getting attacked in other parts of the world, when you see them being defaced here and things being said really quite openly about the community on social media. It doesn't just make you think about yourself, but about everyone you know and of course Jewish institutions that you know won't have anything to do with these sorts of grand conspiracies that people are pulling together about you know, the New World Order and these sorts of things, where you think, okay, well, what's, what's a Jewish community centre in London got to do with any of that, even were it true, which clearly it's not. Uh, and you talk
2: about social media. What sort of role do you think social media platforms have played in in this sort of pollution of our political discourse with the sort of thing you're talking about? I mean, look at X slash Twitter. They've been accused of failing to stop them spreading. Uh, Elon Musk has been accused of spreading anti-Semitic conspiracies in, in recent days. And, and this is someone the Prime Minister gave a fairly fawning interview to, indeed did a fawning interview of, only a couple of weeks ago. I mean, what 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 what's your response to that?
5: Yeah, I, th- I think social media and its proliferation has played a really huge role in this because previously a lot of the information would have been in sort of stranger corners of the internet where people would have had to have actively sought it out. And similarly, if one of your friends came out with some of these sorts of things in the pub, I think they'd probably be quite quickly shut down Mm. for being insane. But within online spaces, not only does some of the more um, extreme content and sort of outrage farming essentially get the most clicks and the most revenue, but the whole way that these platforms are built means that if you're watching a bit of conspiratorial content the algorithms are going to feed you more and more and more of that where you end up down a kind of rabbit hole and you can find parts of the internet even on relatively mainstream platforms within individual sort of groups and pages and things like that that none of that is ever really getting challenged so it just reinforces that mindset and i think for people of my generation and younger who grew up on the internet, we're often a lot more sceptical of what we see on there. But for people where the internet and social media became a thing well into their sort of thirties, forties, and fifties, some of the ways that we were taught to look at information online at school, how to be able to ascertain what's true and what isn't, isn't something that they've been brought up with. So I think. There's two aspects to it, partly the proliferation of social media and the ways that the platforms themselves, their whole business model actually is built around these things. So they don't do enough to challenge it. But also in terms of in society more generally, how we look at and critically engage with information that we see online, which a lot of people, unfortunately, accept as being fact because it's on the Internet, so therefore must be true.
2: Well, Charlotte Nichols, Labour MP for Warrington North, thanks very much for joining us to talk through your experience of conspiracy theories in an MP's inbox and the role of social media in spreading disinformation and misinformation. Thanks very much to Charlotte. Well, listening to that was Rod Dakem, who's a reader in politics and a conspiracy theory specialist at King's College London. Hi, Rod. Hi there. Um, Let's you know you, you heard some of what Charlotte Nichols was talking about there, uh, talking about in her, in her view, a sort of explosion in conspiratorial thinking in the mainstream of British politics after the uh, pandemic and during the pandemic, which is doubtless true. but did that really just sort of ignite or tap into a sort of latent conspiratorialism that's always been there in British politics?
3: Yeah, really interesting question. So I think... um, I don't think we're seeing a growth in belief in conspiracy theories across the board. I think what we're seeing is for a small group of people, this has become the primary means with which they understand politics, the primary way they engage in political life. It's very important to them. And that's been driven, I think, by the pandemic. Um, Across history, we generally kind of believe in conspiracy theories at a relatively consistent level. What we do see are spikes of belief in time of crisis and in times particularly of pandemic, So we shouldn't be surprised that this is moving into the mainstream
2: now. And why, did the pan- why do pandemics and times of crisis more generally cause those rises in conspiracies? Conspiracy
3: theories are ways of understanding the world that give us simple answers to really complex problems. So if you imagine for a second what it would be like during the pandemic if, say, you worked in retail, or if you, your job was in jeopardy, you're in lockdown, you're worried right about your future... And there's this scary thing going on in the background. Cognitively, it's quite comforting, it's quite neat to understand that there's a a solution to this problem. This is the deliberate act of a group of people. And if we can just do something about it, we can solve it. Mm. Now, of course, the truth is that in most cases, conspiracy theories are not a very good way of explaining what's going on. You know, anybody who's had any contact with public policy will know that, you know, the truth is, things aren't run by some kind of master plan, some devious master plan. And actually, things are generally spiralling out of control. Um but it's appealing as a way of rationalising what's going on during those times of crisis.
2: Well, over the last few years, we've seen MPs themselves engaging with, and on some occasions explicitly endorsing, conspiracy theories that most people would only encounter on uh, in darker recesses of the internet. Uh, MP Andrew Bridgen lost the Conservative Party whip for labelling Covid vaccines a crime against humanity. Here he is. Madam Deputy Speaker, silence on
4: this issue is is more contagious than the virus itself. Um, And I'd also now, so should courage be. And I would implore all the scientists, the medics, the nurses, and those in the media who, uh, who know the truth about the harm these vaccines are causing to our people
2: to speak out. Uh, And another one is 15-minute cities, which is a local planning concept, which means that everything a person needs, work, shopping, education, healthcare, etc., should be within a 15-minute walk or cycle from any point in the city. Uh, There are some conspiracy theorists who believe that this is a shadowy, deliberate plan to imprison people in their own neighbourhoods and deny them the usual autonomy they expect uh, of of an adult. But here is the Conservative MP, Nick Fletcher, flirting with that theory in the comments.
4: Emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. Yeah. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Yeah. Sheffield is already on this journey and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do yeah. the same. Yeah. Low emission zones cost a taxpayer money, simple as. Yeah. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and that cannot be right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Is this new, Rob, the sort of sight of MPs from a governing party getting up and explicitly echoing conspiratory language?
3: Yeah, I think we should be clear that this isn't something that happens all the time. I mean, Mm. there are certain things, the way 15 Minute Cities is spoken about there, the way, for instance, Andrew Bridgen spoke about the COVID vaccine is very much on the margins of politics. And we can see that because, obviously, it's not been hugely beneficial to his political career. I mean, what we are seeing is a broad kind of, slow movement emergence of these ideas um in mainstream political rhetoric we've seen it to a greater extent in the states it is a little bit over here but the difference i think in the uk is that there isn't the widespread political coalition there isn't the support for these kinds of ideas put another way it is not necessarily almost certainly not a successful
2: political tactic well which which you know you prompted my next question which is that are there votes in conspiracies in this country and the answer would appear to be no Yeah, in fact, you know, hardly anybody
3: believes this stuff. What we're seeing is a small but very committed movement uh, who is kind of very connected with the kind of things that Andrew Bridgen particularly is saying, who are highly mobilised, who are highly active and visible, but we're not seeing a widespread group of voters who are going to support this sort of thing.
2: Well, let's take a look at where the general public are, according to YouGov's latest survey on conspiracy theories conducted in 2021. Uh, Generally speaking... As you say, uh, the survey suggests the UK isn't a hotbed of conspiracies worldwide. India and countries in Africa and Asia more likely to believe in conspiracies. Uh, but in the UK, 33% of people said the harmful effects of vaccines are being deliberately hidden from the public. Uh, that's higher than 28% of the US. 18% of people said they believe a single group of people secretly control events. In the US, that's nearly a third Only 8% think climate change is a hoax, 20% believe that in the US, 4% of people are Holocaust deniers, 3% of people think Covid is a hoax, and 12% think the US election was stolen. Do any of those numbers surprise you, Rod? I mean, they're slightly higher than we would normally expect,
3: but actually, we all believe in conspiracy theories to a certain extent, I think it's part of the human condition. Um, I think what the distinction here is the people for whom this forms their main way of understanding politics. Those are the people who are going to be mobilised by these ideas. Most people, it will just be in the margins.
2: And and we're having this discussion, and something that's in the back of my mind is you have to be conscious that sometimes things you might write off as conspiracy theories turn out to be true. Or, you know, a theory of a conspiracy, I'm sort of thinking like, you know, if in uh, 1989 I'd said to someone on this on this radio station uh, i'm a liverpool fan and i believe the police in south yorkshire have uh, deliberately conspired to put the blame for this uh, for the hillsborough tragedy on liverpool fans people would have said well you sound like an insane conspiracy theorist and that turned out to be true later on so how do we have these discussions without discrediting uh you know and the opposite token you know tom watson deputy leader of the labor party gets up in the Commons in in uh, about a decade ago and talks about uh, a paedophile ring in Westminster which turned out to be the work of a fantasist. So how do you strike the balance between taking, you know, a clear-eyed view of abuses of power that may sound unbelievable to right-thinking people? I also think of uh, the Birmingham Six miscarriages of justice like that. I mean, Lord Denning, the, the judge in question when they had their appeal, said something like, you know, No one could imagine a a policeman ever acting in the way that they turned out to have behaved in Birmingham. So how do you strike the balance between taking a clear-eyed view of power if you are a politician, particularly a campaigning politician, and not ending up in a place where you are giving voice to complete nonsense?
3: Yeah, really good question. I mean, the first thing to say is that there's always been political conspiracies, and there always will be, but in general... In our context, they're not a very good way of explaining what's going on in political events. It's just too difficult to conceal a conspiracy these days. With all the institutions that we've got going on, with all the ways we can share information, it's on the edge of implausible in most cases. However, the critical thing here, I think, is that it's not about the specific idea. It's about the way of understanding the world. The important things about conspiracy theories is that they can degrade trust in democracy and in conventional forms of expertise – and they can mobilise people, particularly recent forms of conspiracy. they mobilise them into political action and, in some cases, violence. Um, these are the issues we need to be thinking about. And it's not about the specific idea that motivates people. It's this way of understanding that the world is divided into good and evil and there are a group of evil people secretly conspiring to direct events.
2: And it's, but I imagine it's difficult to sort of disabuse people of that view when you could point to any number of massive abuses of power, you know, child sex abuse in the Catholic Church you know, stuff like that. I'm not, for a moment, legitimising conspiracy theories, but it must make the job of people who are trying to dispel misinformation harder when there are real examples of this stuff people can point to. Yeah, and more than that. So
3: a genuine conspiracy theorist, somebody who really believes this stuff, their starting point will be that any information contrary to their beliefs must be compromised, it must be generated from somewhere. And so it's really difficult to argue against them and present evidence because they simply won't accept it. Well,
2: I think you're part of the conspiracy for trying to debunk it. Indeed so. Well, Rod Dacom, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Rod Dacom, Reader in Politics and a conspiracy theory specialist. Very, have to be very careful not to say I'm a conspiracy theorist at King's College, London. Thank you very much for joining us to talk through the role of conspiracies in British political culture, how to spot them uh, and what they mean. Well, during the US Republican primaries, conspiracies have featured heavily with candidates trying to out-Trump Donald Trump, the front runner. Well, so earlier I spoke to Joe Yusinski. who's a political scientist at the University of Miami who specializes in the study of conspiracy theories. I asked him how integral conspiracies are
6: to American political life, starting from the very conception of the republic itself. Sure. I mean, you can read the back end of the Declaration of Independence and it's a bunch of kooky conspiratorial accusations against the king. Of course, the front end is some of the greatest political prose ever written, in my opinion, but the back end is conspiracy stuff. And then if you follow the history from there, uh, there was an Illuminati panic just a few decades after that, a Freemason freakout a few decades after that. In the last century, we had multiple red scares. And now we are in a part of history where conspiracy theories are very much a part of mainstream political rhetoric right now. And not just about any one thing or any one theory, but just the idea that politicians are talking in in conspiratorial terms, everything is rigged, and they are chasing people who share those same viewpoints. You
2: talk about the, tentatively talk about the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories in contemporary US politics. Can you give us a couple of examples?
6: So, no, Donald Trump, now former president and likely Republican nominee in 2024, his entire political career has been built largely on conspiracy theories, talking about how climate change is a hoax perpetrated by China. All of
2: this with the global warming and the, that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax.
6: Uh, talking about vaccine conspiracy theory stuff. Now the Democrats are
2: politicizing The
6: coronavirus. You know that, right? Coronavirus. (laughs) This is their new hoax. Talking about how elections are going to be rigged. Most people uh, understand what happened. That was a rigged election. And by the time his first term was over, much of the conservative media and many uh, Republicans in Congress and the Senate, who weren't regularly conspiracy theorists, had joined in on this conspiratorial rhetoric with him. So once Trump leaves office and it's clear that he lost, there's just been coordinated messaging for years now that the election was rigged and Trump really won and elections can't be trusted. And that's not a normal thing. Now, the interesting part of this is that most conspiracy theories are not believed more now than they were in the past. When people tell me, oh, my God, it's so much worse now than it's ever been, My first question is, is it worse now than it was when we were burning and crushing witches? Or when we were having Red Scares? I mean, is it worse than that? And the answer is usually no. So what we're seeing now isn't so much about Americans just believing conspiracy theories more and more. It's about high-level politicians engaging with them more and more, particularly since 2015, 2016.
2: And I also think of recently... Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, the Republican presidential contender, musing aloud on cable news whether George Bush was responsible for or had foreknowledge of the September 11th attacks, which 10-15 years ago was something you'd only find on the weirder recesses of the internet.
1: I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers.
6: Well, there were actually some Democratic candidates, minor ones, um, who were running for president who had had dalliances with that conspiracy theory about 9-11. Um, but for the most part, that was sort of verboten, right? We're not supposed to talk about that stuff. It's sort of taboo, at least at that time. But now what a lot of people have figured out is that you don't have to be Trump to do what Trump does. You don't have to be Trump to tap into Trump's coalition. And we have seen numerous politicians like the governor of my state, Ron DeSantis, uh, Vivek, who you just mentioned, and numerous others sort of wade into this rhetorical territory whenever it is convenient for them. They want these kids to hate this country. Uh, They want them to reject our founding, our institutions, and they want to replace that uh, with their leftist ideology. And this tells us about a massive sea change in electoral politics in the U.S., that it's no longer between right and left. It's between a party that is very much pushing conspiracy theories and another party that is trying to at best balance against them. And are
2: sections of the electorate any more susceptible to conspiracy theories, conspiratorial thinking than other parts? Is it a partisan thing necessarily, or is it not that simple?
6: It's not so much partisan, because what we tend to find is that both the right and the left are equally likely to believe conspiracy theories, as long as those theories tell them things they already believe, which is usually the other side is up to no good, and we're the innocent victims of the plot, right? So everyone likes believing that. But outside of that, and perhaps it's an unsatisfying answer, but it's not like people slip on a banana peel and become raving conspiracy theorists, right? Generally, the people who are into conspiracy theories already see the world in those terms. They look out the window, and events and circumstances to them are most likely caused by shadowy conspiracies pulled off by powerful groups they already dislike. So you can put any sort of conspiracy theory you want on social media or spread it at the office water cooler. Doesn't mean everyone's going to buy into it. But the people who will buy into it are people who are already predisposed towards it which is why i imagine
2: saying technology has fueled this
6: is a bit of a red herring the interesting thing is the levels of belief in individual conspiracy theories just hasn't gone up Mm. i mean you could find a few conspiracy theories here that have gone up over time but you could find as many that have gone down usually you can find more that have gone down over time so it's just not the case that more of the public is buying in than let's say the pre-internet era and again Even when people are online, they're picking their friends, they're picking their information environments, and even if something gets through to them that they necessarily weren't interested in already, they have psychological barriers that keep them from being convinced by things they are already inclined towards. So it's not like you can just put something on Facebook or Twitter and just convince everyone in its path. It just doesn't happen.
2: And is a more conspiratorial politics necessarily a more violent politics? Because if we're talking about conspiracies in US politics, and you've already mentioned this one, you can't mention that without mentioning January the 6th. USA!
6: USA! USA! USA!
2: Can you draw a straight line between increased political violence and an increased belief in conspiracy theories?
6: It's tough to draw a straight line, but I would say this is that when you activate into mainstream politics. People who are highly conspiratorial in their worldviews, those people are bringing with them all of their other psychological and political baggage. And often what we find is that people who are strongly conspiratorial in their worldview, they're also more inclined towards violence, towards interpersonal conflict. They have what we call dark personality traits. So Not only do they seem to accept violence, but they are inclined towards it.
2: And can the political establishment in the US in general, and the Republican Party in particular, will they find it easy or straightforward to put this sort of conspiratorial politics back in the box whence it came? Now it's become, as you say, pretty integral to elements of mainstream politics in the US.
6: Well, it's the slings and arrows of outrageous political fortune, right? I mean, this only happened just because of a weird set of circumstance. It wasn't destiny that Trump was going to win if he entered the presidential race. I mean, he had no ready-made coalition. He had no experience. He had no idea what he was doing. And he had almost no no one in the establishment endorsing him or, or supporting him for, for much of 2016. And the reason why he won is it was so many mainstream Republican candidates dividing up the mainstream Republican vote that he was able to skate by with 40 percent in the primaries. So if that can happen such that a conspiracy minded candidate can win, then it can happen that a non conspiracy minded candidate can come to power, too. But other than that, I don't necessarily see any incentives for Republican leadership to push back too much on this stuff because they have now built a coalition that the expectations are that, you know, if you watch a Republican debate, it's going to be tons of conspiracy theories. um, Everything's rigged and we got to go bomb people now. So if that's what the crowd wants, the leadership is going to be highly inclined to give it to them. That was Joe Yusinski from the University of Miami. And also, you heard from
2: Rod Dakin from King's College London and the Labour MP Charlotte Nicholls. That's all we've got time for on today's Red Box podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow for the final podcast of the week. And in the meantime, make sure you like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your pods from. <laughs>